Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Deborah's home was stolen. No, I don't mean thieves stole stuff. I mean scammers literally stole her home. The FBI calls title theft one of the fastest growing white-collar crimes. And this story is why you need home title lock. Deborah says criminals found the title to our home online and filed fraudulent documents claiming they owned our home. Wait, it gets worse. Deborah goes on to say, I was evicted from my own home and 85 grand in equity gone. Nobody believes you can get your home stolen this easily. This is why you need home title lock because no insurance or bank protects your home from title theft. First things first, go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if your home's title has been tampered with. You need to protect the legal title to your home so you don't end up like Deborah. Go to HomeTitleLock.com now for 60 risk-free days of protection. Again, that's HomeTitleLock.com. HomeTitleLock.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today we're reading from David Enrich's book, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. This is from Chapter 10. It's titled The Mar-a-Lago Prize. In 1905, a German immigrant living in the Bronx set up a small barber shop on the ground floor of a newly constructed building at 60 Wall Street in the heart of Manhattan's booming financial district. In an era before skyscrapers, the 25-story L-shaped tower was a landmark, its gargoyle-guarded roof visible from the nearby waterfront. The barbershop thrived, offering shaves and trims to a procession of bankers, stock exchange traders, lawyers, and office workers. Barber's name was Frederick Trump. The same year that he opened the shop, his wife gave birth to a boy named Fred. Many years passed, and the barbershop closed, and the old 60 Wall Street gave way in 1989 to a new 60 Wall Street, a 47-story tower topped with a distinctive pyramid roof. For a time, it was home to J.P. Morgan and Company. Then the bank left, and in 2005, Deutsche Bank started relocating its American staff, displaced ever since 9-11, to its new home at 60 Wall Street. And so Frederick Trump's grandson, born to Fred's wife in 1946, became an occasional visitor to the site of his grandfather's old barber shop. Deutsche's relationship with Donald Trump had only deepened since Mike Offit left. Justin Kennedy, this is the son of Justice Anthony Kennedy, Justin Kennedy, now a managing director, had become a key point contact for Trump and helped chaperone large real estate deals for him through the bank. 
Kennedy's role was to find customers to buy portions of loans after Deutsche dispensed the money, a process that allowed Deutsche Bank to make larger loans than it otherwise could have. Kennedy sometimes sat with Trump in his luxury box at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament or at Manhattan nightclubs, where Trump would park himself at a table in the corner facing outward, holding court like a mafia don. Now, with Kennedy's encouragement, Deutsche hurried along a Henry Villard-like path. In 2000, the bank had plunked down another $150 million to be used for the renovations of Trump's building at 40 Wall Street. The next year, Deutsche agreed to extend Trump a mortgage worth more than $900 million, at the time the largest ever on a single property, so he could buy the General Motors building on the southeastern corner of New York's Central Park. Trump already owned half of the 50-story building. He wanted the rest. And in 2002, Deutsche agreed to refinance about $70 million that he owed on some of his Atlantic City casinos. Those loans came out of Deutsche's commercial real estate division, which Kennedy was helping to run. Not everyone was enamored with Trump. Seth Waugh, W-A-U-G-H, one of Edson's many Merrill Lynch recruits and the head of Deutsche's American operations, learned around 2001 that the bank was planning to lend Trump about $500 million to use as he wished, basically an unrestricted cash infusion Waugh had previously witnessed up close the carnage that Trump could inflict on imprudent financial institutions. At Merrill, Edison had assigned him the task of mopping up after Trump defaulted on nearly $700 million of bonds that Merrill had helped sell for his Taj Mahal casino in Atlantic City. Waugh was in no hurry to repeat the experience at Deutsche. He voiced strong objections to the proposed new loan to Trump, in which Trump would not have had to put up any hard assets as collateral. And the deal soon died. Yet Deutsche's broader Trump relationship rumbled on. In 2003, another arm of Deutsche, focused on helping companies raise money by selling stocks and bonds to investors, agreed to work with Trump. The point man on this part of the relationship was Richard Byrne, another Merrill veteran who had been involved in the Taj Mahal debacle. Byrne had helped sell the ill-fated Taj bonds to investors. Now Trump hired Byrne's group at Deutsche to issue bonds for his troubled Trump Hotel and Casino Resorts. Byrne knew this would be an uphill battle. Not only had Trump defaulted in the past, but he also had recently been taunting investors that he might stop paying back other outstanding bonds. Waugh didn't warn Byrne about the recently rejected $500 million loan, and so Byrne organized a roadshow for Trump to meet with and try to win over big institutional investors. He escorted Trump to meetings all over New York and Boston. At every stop, boardrooms and auditoriums were jammed with traders, fund managers, senior executives, and secretaries curious to see the Donald show. And Trump didn't disappoint. He rocked, he rolled, and he delivered wildly optimistic and inconsistent financial projections. Afterward, Trump called Byrne to ask how much money they'd raised. The answer, alas was virtually zero. Byrne braced for an explosion as he explained to Trump that though he'd been treated like a celebrity, nobody trusted him with their money. Trump took the rejection in stride. Let me talk to your salespeople, he requested. Byrne agreed and Trump came to deliver a pep talk. Fellas, I know this isn't the easiest thing you've all had to sell, he acknowledged, but if you get this done, you'll all be my guests at Mar-a-Lago. Trump was always good at pushing an audience's buttons. A weekend with Trump at Mar-a-Lago bragging rights that not even money could buy. And this new incentive did the trick. The salesman worked the phones, cast a wider net for more clients, and managed to sell an impressive $485 million of junk bonds, 
albeit at a high interest rate that reflected investors' fears that Trump might default. The book Dark Towers by David Enrich. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, on the line with us is David Enrich. He is the finance editor at the New York Times and the author of the new book, Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. His Twitter handle is David Enrich, uh, E-N-R-I-C-H. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for writing this brilliant book. I just think it's spectacular. Today, we are seeing across the news, this assertion broadly from the U.S. intelligence communities that caused Trump to fire some of his intelligence officials, the most senior people. This briefing to the intelligence committee and the U.S. House of Representatives that said that the Russians are trying to interfere in our election right now on behalf of Donald Trump, much as they did in 2016, and openly asserting that without their help, Trump might not even have become president in 2016. Why is that? Why would Russian oligarchs or the Russian government, and I don't know which it is, I, I've always assumed that Trump had been laundering money for Russian oligarchs for years and years, and therefore they've been supporting him, but, you know, maybe it's Putin and the government itself. But why is it that, you know, out of Russia comes support for Donald Trump? Well, that's a good question, and I don't have a clear answer to that. What I can tell you is that because of Donald Trump's very close relationship with Deutsche Bank, that he has been in business with Russians for many years now. And that's a kind of a very symbiotic relationship. I think Russians have been trying to get their money out of Russia, and it's hard to do that in part because the Kremlin makes it hard to do that. And so they've found ways using Deutsche Bank as a conduit to get their money out of Russia into countries like Latvia and then into the United States or Western Europe. And in some cases, that money has ended up in Donald Trump's properties, either things that he owns outright or that he has his name on. And I've heard and reported on specific meetings where Deutsche Bank kind of played this middleman role where it was introducing Trump to very, very wealthy Russians, including some with very close ties to the Kremlin. So there's a lot of smoke here, I think, about um, the really intimate ties, not only between Deutsche Bank and Donald Trump or Deutsche Bank and Russia, but Deutsche Bank, Trump and Russia all connected in a row. And, you know, I think there's more, we still have a lot more to learn about that, but there's a tremendous amount of circumstantial evidence that connects all three of them. I recall in the weeks before Donald Trump took the call from President Erdogan of Turkey, that the U.S. had to pull out of northern Syria and stab the Kurds in the back, basically, a, a move that has now led to 800,000 refugees and just massive bloodshed. That Erdogan had made a, a remark that was reported in the press that Donald Trump owned two Trump Towers in Turkey and that Erdogan had the ability to take his name off them. To what extent is there any evidence out there that you can report on or have reported on in your book, Dark Towers? We're talking with David Enrich that Trump's foreign policy is being shaped by the fact that he's got Trump Towers in Turkey, he's got Trump Towers in the Philippines, and so he's dancing with Duterte. He obviously wants to build a Trump Tower and probably, you know, was going to, I, I believe, after the election, had he not won in Moscow and other countries, and some of the stand countries, he's got towers in some of those places, very, very corrupt countries. 
To what extent is there any evidence that our foreign policy is being shaped by Trump's financial interests? You know, I haven't seen any evidence of the foreign policy being affected by that. In fairness, I haven't really looked at that issue. What I have looked at, though, that I think also kind of answers your question, is that there are other elements of policy that do appear, at least circumstantially, to have been possibly affected by Trump's financial interests. And the clearest example to me is with the Justice Department, where Deutsche Bank, Trump's lender of last resort for the past 20 years, had a very active criminal investigation into the bank for Russian money laundering that was nearing a conclusion, I understand, toward the end of the Obama administration. And as soon as the Trump administration took over, that investigation just went completely silent. And I've talked to a lot of people inside the bank who said that initially they just figured that this is a product of a presidential transition underway and that it was probably just put on a back burner for a moment, not that it was completely shut down. And then weeks passed and months passed, and now a couple of years have passed. And at least for some people inside the bank, their conclusion is that they are beneficiaries of Trump's Justice Department basically having called off the dogs because the last thing the president wants to do is draw further attention to the fact that he is deep in debt to foreign financial institutions, especially one that has a very well-established track record of laundering money for wealthy Russians and for people close to the Kremlin. That's not a good look for the president. A friend of mine who's a Democratic member of Congress told me on the QT that there was concern. He mentioned that Justice Department investigation under the Obama administration into Deutsche Bank and suggested that the and this was just rumor, right? Let's just be very clear. This is rumor that Justice Anthony Kennedy's son, who was the head of the what was the branch at Deutsche Bank? He was a senior executive in the commercial real estate division. Okay, and he was the guy who was helping raise money for Trump and and signing off on loans for Trump, that he was one of the targets of that criminal investigation and that Trump used that to convince his father, Anthony Kennedy, who's in great health and just doing fine, that he should resign from the Supreme Court so that he could get Brett Kavanaugh on the court. And uh, this was the buzz that was going on in in Democratic circles in D.C. Have you uh, discovered anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I've spent a lot of time looking into that, and I think Dark Towers tells the story about what really happened with Justice Kennedy and his son Justin and the Kavanaugh nomination in Deutsche Bank, I think, in kind of the first time in an authoritative way. Can you summarize that very quickly for us? I want to avoid giving away big details in the book, but, but I'll tell you that there's... Look, there's something to it, but it's not quite as sexy as certain, it sounds like, your source, and I know this rumor's been going around. And I've not seen any evidence that Justin Kennedy was under investigation or anything like that. It is true that Justin Kennedy was one of the kind of lead point people on the Trump relationship in the 2000s, a period during which Trump received well over a billion dollars from Deutsche Bank that was basically that no other bank was willing to provide because he had this track record of defaulting on his loans. And the relationship that Justin Kennedy and Donald Trump built during that time period proved very strong and very long-lasting. And so when Trump took office, and obviously Scalia was gone, Scalia had died, and so he already had one person to nominate for the court, and he really wanted a second to make his permanent imprint on the court. And the way to do that with someone like Kennedy, who, as you said, I think was in good health, they needed to increase, the Trump administration, the White House, needed to increase Anthony Kennedy's comfort level with how the Trump administration was going to handle stuff, whether it was picking his successor, but also just Trump's 
personal credibility. And I can tell you, again, without going into too many details, because I don't want to spoil the book, there was a charm offensive that the White House embarked on. And part of that involved appealing directly to Anthony Kennedy about the work that Justin had done for Donald Trump at Deutsche Bank. To be clear, I'm not sure there's anything illegal. In fact, I don't think there is anything illegal about that. I'm not sure if there's anything improper. It's certainly unusual. And I think, I mean, that was a turning point in the Trump presidency. And conservatives prior to the Kavanaugh nomination, I think, were really losing patience with Trump. His presidency was really on the rocks. And so Deutsche Bank, through these indirect connections that it had fostered over the year with Trump, in some ways really helped stabilize the Trump presidency at this crucial moment. And it's ironic because over and over and over again during Trump's years as a businessman, where he really was not a very successful businessman, Deutsche Bank over and over again came to rescue and stabilize his floundering businesses. And so now you've got him in the first year of his presidency kind of stepping in to stabilize his floundering presidency as well. So it's it's ironic and interesting. And I think there's, I think it'll surprise a lot of people. I'm wondering, number one, if you're of the opinion that Donald Trump actually has a negative net worth, as David K. Johnson has been asserting for years and years. And then secondly, what's it going to take for us to find out what the true story is behind, you know, Trump's association with Deutsche Bank and all these others? Well, look, I mean, I think this book tells that story pretty comprehensively for the first time, but there's still a lot of secrets out there, including things like Trump's net worth, how much he's paying in taxes, and most important, where he's getting his money. And Deutsche Bank has a lot of those answers stored in its electronic vault, and it is ready, I understand, to hand that over to congressional investigators. It's waiting on the Supreme Court hearing and Supreme Court decision that will take place later this year. And if the Supreme Court rules against the Trumps, Deutsche Bank is going to fork over all this information, and it's probably going to end up in the hands of Congress and therefore the public. So there's a lot more to come on this story, I think. David Enrich is the author of the book Dark Towers, Deutsche Bank, Donald Trump, and an Epic Trail of Destruction. It's absolutely extraordinary. I encourage you to get a copy of it. Dark Towers is the book. David, thanks so much for dropping by today and sharing your thoughts with us. And your thanks research. for having me. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or large under eye bags? Now imagine that they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw the results for myself. You'll be delighted too. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results you will be too. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolff, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, author of numerous books, his latest is Understanding Socialism. 
Democracy at Work. Info and rdwolf with two fs.com are his two websites. You can tweet him at Prof Wolf. And Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be here, Tom. I shared a link with you about this broadly, but I'll just set it up for people who are listening. The situation with the United States and debt right now, and I realize this is kind of endemic around the Western world as well, but it seems to me like, you know, with the national debt, the levels of corporate debt that we have, the levels of personal debt that we have, the student debt that we have, all these different levels of debt, which are only largely sustainable by the fact that interest rates are so low and have been artificially low since 2008. Kind of reminds me of somebody who, you know, who has a good job and they bought a house and they own a car and, and they got some credit cards, but they're doing good. And then they lose their job and they can't get a job. And, and so they start running up their credit cards until they've maxed them out. And then they borrow against their car and now they've maxed out their car loans. And so then they get a mortgage on their house and they live on that for a year or so. And now their house is up to their eyeballs and they're just maxed out on debt and their only option at that point is bankruptcy and I'm wondering as a country when we hit the level of maximum debt what is that where is that how does that play out and at what point you hear stories about countries having their currencies collapse or their currencies being damaged by things like the monetary policy that's irresponsible and one of the stories that I caught this morning that I think plays right into this, this was from the Axios newsletter, it looks like the Fed is planning on lowering interest rates again. The Fed looks to be laying the groundwork to lower U.S. interest rates this year following a pattern set in April 2019 before rate cuts in July, September, and October. If they continue to do that, that's going to mean that there's going to be even more debt. How does this all work and how does this all end, sir? I'm virtually certain, as are I think most observers, that this will end badly. The dispute really isn't so much about that as it is how long can this continue before the bad ending. Basically what you're seeing and what most observers who follow this understand is we have now accumulated so much debt, government debt, corporate debt, and the debt of individuals and families that the effort of the Federal Reserve to go back and raise interest rates to what they've normally been to slow down the uh, explosion of debt is no longer possible because it would do such damage to the people who are already in debt. For example, if you raise interest rates, how are people going to buy homes with a mortgage that depends on interest rates, or buy a car with a, with a car loan that depends on that, or basically pay off however low their monthly credit card bill, or how are the students going to be able to continue in school? The country is now mortgaged, if you like. It, it, is, it is captured by the level of debt. You know, it started in 2000 with the so-called dot-com crash. It got even worse in 2008 with the subprime mortgage debt and crash. And so what we've been doing is keeping the economy on what some people call artificial life support, meaning debt. Debt is what keeps this economy going. And, you know, when things get scary and it looks like it's going to collapse... All that the Federal Reserve is able to do at this point politically is pump in even more debt, keep interest rates at or even below zero, and keep 
buying uh, securities from the public with freshly minted new money in the hopes that adding money will kind of get us through this crisis. But of course, the finger wagging of all economists that I know is that, as you put it at the beginning, this is a bubble waiting to burst. And even if the Federal Reserve now lowers interest rates yet again, fearful that either the economy is about to turn down or that Chinese virus is going to do some damage or some kind of geopolitical split. You know, there are strong signs that the Europeans are going to switch over and become allies of China because the United States is no longer a reliable ally for them. Any of these things that might happen are so scary in what they could do and how fast they could do it that the Federal Reserve feels it has no option but to lower interest rates, pump in more money. And as one or two smart observers have pointed out, yeah, it may get Mr. Trump reelected because it's point, it postpones the crisis. But wow, will he be in trouble if he does win re-election, because this is going to hit, and when it hits, he will be blamed. So Donald Trump could be the Herbert Hoover of our generation if he gets re-elected, or, or that might even happen, you know, in the next nine months. I mean, you know, the economy crashed under George W. Bush, but it was so close to the election that, frankly, I think the, the Democrats failed to politically capitalize on that and turn him into Herbert Hoover. Is that, is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Yes, in part, I would go a little bit further. I mean, they have allowed Mr. Trump to say and get away with saying over and over again how great the economy is. I mean, that is a false statement. I mean, I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, you, we would flunk students who said such a thing, given the level of debt, given the level of low wages and no growth in wages. I mean, I could give you a long list, but this is not a great economy. But the Democrats, particularly the established Democratic Party, has felt itself unable to offend its donors, I guess, by saying that the economy is in terrible trouble. So here's what we have. Mr. Obama, whose economy looked quite like Mr. Trump's in the last part of his administration, was attacked by Mr. Trump for having a very bad economy and claiming otherwise as being fake. Now that Mr. Trump is in the position Obama was, he does not have someone to call him out for doing exactly what Obama did, misrepresenting the economy as if it were in good shape, when obviously the Federal Reserve and most economists can quickly point to everything showing that the economy has enormous accumulated problems. What does it take to break the dollar? I mean, I, my sense has always been that the, our economy is so huge and, and the dollar is you know, an international currency that it, it's pretty much unbreakable. Is it possible that the dollar could be badly damaged by these kinds of things? Now it is. I think you were right up until last two or three years. The overwhelming dominance of the United States economically meant that in good times and bad, the United States dollar was where everybody who was wealthy around the world would hide their money, keep their money safe, uh, bring it to New York or another capital in the United States for safekeeping. And so uh, lending to the United States government and holding treasuries was, you know, as good as gold or better. 
But the reality is, and this is so hard for the American people to understand, the United States' position in the world economy keeps shrinking. The growth of China, the consolidation of Europe, even after Brexit, these are changing and the dollar is becoming more vulnerable. And so you have to be very scared about where we are. Wow. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much, Professor, for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. It's great talking with you. Professor Wolf's websites, rdwolf with two fs.com and democracyatwork.info. I keep seeing these basically hysterical posts, particularly on some, there's some progressive websites that are like, you know, hey, if Bernie's a nominee, that's wonderful, and, or Elizabeth Warren, for that matter, I think you could kind of interchange them in terms of, you know, how hysterical people in the, quote, middle and right are. But then there's other websites like Democratic Underground where there's literally every day a major thread that's pushed way up to the top that says if Bernie's our nominee, the party's going to crash and burn and Donald Trump's going to get reelected and we're all doomed and, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it. Thomas Pally is on the line with us. He's an economist. He's the co-editor of the Review of Keynesian Economics. His website, thomaspally, P-A-L-L-E-Y dot com, has a brilliant new article on it. It's kind of a blog titled, Bernie Sanders, Nothing to Fear Except Fear Itself. Thomas, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Lay out your argument, if you would, please, why, you know, in the case of, of the people probably listening to this show all over the country and on Sirius XM and whatnot, progressives are worried about Bernie. Why should they not be? And in your mind, can we also apply that logic to Elizabeth Warren if she ends up prevailing, even though the trend lines certainly seem to be on Bernie's side? Yeah. Well, it's very simple. Let's face it. Bernie Sanders is winning all the arguments. If you ask people, do we need a minimum wage, a higher minimum wage? They say yes. Economists say yes. Do we need stronger unions? People say yes. Economists say yes. That's the way we're going to correct our income distribution problem. Do we need a green infrastructure investment program to deal with climate change? People say yes. Everyone recognizes free public education. This is what was so great about our country in the 1950s and 1960s. All those folks, I think California is your base, or who went to the University of California state system, it was basically free then. Higher taxes on the wealthy to deal with our wealth inequality. Bernie is winning the arguments, and the establishment doesn't have a response to that. So what they are turning to is fear tactics. They're trying to scare people away from Bernie. And that's what my article is really about. The only thing is nothing to fear about Bernie except fear itself. And then you've got to dig into the politics of why the establishment is doing that. You're the co-editor of the Review of Keynesian Economics, and my sense of things, and I wrote a book about this called Screwed, is that basically from 1933 to 1980, we were operating in an environment of Keynesian economics, which built a strong middle class. The middle class, the working people were actually getting wealthier faster than were the top 5% or 1%. And Reagan flipped that upside down, took us back to the economics of uh, Warren Harding's, basically, his uh, horse and sparrow economics, where you feed the horse more oats, the horse will poop more undigested oats, so the little sparrows can eat more. Uh, Reagan reinvented that as trickle-down, and it's destroyed the middle class. We see now the middle class, the percentage of Americans as middle class dropped below 50% for the first time last year. The things that Bernie is talking about 
you know, I remember in the 60s, I was a teenager, but I still remember it. The attacks, particularly from my dad, my Republican dad, attacking Lyndon Johnson when he was proposing Medicare and Medicaid, saying that's socialism, it's going to destroy America, you can't have that, it's going to bankrupt the country. All of these kinds of things. I don't see anything that Bernie is proposing that is not 100% consistent with Franklin Roosevelt's second Bill of Rights and with Lyndon Johnson's New Deal. Speak to that. You're absolutely right. Let's go back a little how you started this about the change in direction that we took in 1980 when we elected Ronald Reagan. I like to talk about the period before as being New Deal Keynesianism. So it's two parts to it. One is the New Deal of FDR, which tries to change the structure of the economy to make it deliver for working families. And then side by side that, you add the Keynesianism, which you ensure the economy operates at full employment. And that was just a magical formula. It really produced economic outcomes that we'd never seen before, and we really haven't seen since. But the business community, it is amazing when you go back and read the history of the 1930s, they were so against FDR. FDR was actually the man who saved American capitalism, but they were so against it, and they wanted to turn back the things that he did to improve income inequality, to improve income equality, to get wages rising. And that's been the battle in American politics for the last 60 years, and Reagan won out in 1980. And then they call these things the way they do it is they call these things socialist. That's the way, that's the scare tactic they involve to scare people away. But think about it. Most people drove to work today, probably use the interstate system. Is that socialist? It's crazy. Our public school system, is that socialist? It's crazy. It's a way of scaring people away from voting their interest. And that's why it's so important that people see through this fear-mongering, because we've been on wrong path now for 40 years. The evidence is in, and now Bernie Sanders, amazingly, is giving us an opportunity to change path. And we really, really do need to seize this opportunity. You said you could talk about the politics of it. I, you know, I, I get it that in 92, Reagan had decimated the unions to the point that Clinton felt that he had to start reaching out to corporations and backing off New Deal economics. But in the era of the Internet and the ability of candidates to raise money directly, things have changed considerably. You want to speak to that? The Bill Clinton era represents the takeover of the Democratic Party from the inside by Wall Street. If I try and find an excuse for it, I can say, look, the country didn't have a good understanding. It didn't have a good argument. Maybe some of Clinton's politics were a holding pattern. But then the Democrats stopped thinking of them as a holding pattern and started believing them and sort of basically bought over to the other side. And this is our problem. We've now got a Democratic Party who basically likes the economy the way it is and doesn't want to change it. And Bernie Sanders does want to change it. And that's why they're turning to the fear tactics. But everything that Bernie is talking about is just taking us back to LBJ FDR economics, right? A lot of it, yes, but it works. But it's, there's an environmental part to it that wasn't never there before. There's an internet and education part to it. There's a lot of science that wasn't there to it before. So it's updated for the time. Great. Thomas Pally, he is co-editor of the Review of Keynesian Economics. His website, thomaspally, P-A-L-L-E-Y dot com. Thomas, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Tom Harbin here with you live from Seattle, from the TV studios of Bellevue College. And uh, hi there. And and a a member of our audience has a question. You want to give us your name and your question? Hi, my name is Harriet. Question, Tom, is 
I thought the superdelegates were gone from the nominating process, but it looks like the corporatists, the centrists are aiming for a floor fight at the Democratic Convention this summer. Can you explain what that would look like, how it works, and what those of us voters who think the plurality nominee should get the nomination can do to prevent a takeover at the convention? First of all, what we can do is you have access to superdelegates. Your member of Congress, your member of the House of Representatives is a superdelegate. Both of your senators are superdelegates, and so you can be lobbying them right now to say if there's not an absolute majority on the first ballot that we should pick whoever won the plurality, whoever won the largest number of votes, even if it's not over 50%. To the extent that you may have connections with any other members of Congress around the country, or you have friends who are in other states and can lobby them. That's a pretty good-sized body of superdelegates. There are a little short of 900 superdelegates, a little short of 4,000 total delegates without the superdelegates. So to win the first ballot, that person is going to have to get almost 2,000 votes. It's just a little over 1,900, as I recall. And that would be you know, having 50% plus one vote, basically. And if that happens, then that's the end of it, and the superdelegates don't even get to vote. Uh, Under the rules right now, if there is a plurality but not a majority, in other words, if somebody gets uh, 45% and then the next person gets 32%, the next person gets, you know, 19% or whatever, but nobody got over 50%, so you've got somebody got a plurality, somebody got the largest number of votes, then what happens is it goes to a second ballot. And in the second ballot, under the new DNC rules, and keep in mind, under the old DNC rules, superdelegates voted on the first ballot. And that was the thing that the Sanders campaign was complaining four years ago was it's a rigged system because the superdelegates are basically the party insiders. I mean, they're the elected, by and large, they're elected officials. They're people who are senior officials in state Democratic parties. I've seen on a number of television programs, and I intend to bring this up the next time I talk to Mark Pocan. Typically, today is the day that he's on for a full hour taking calls, but this week he's on the road. I believe he's out campaigning with Bernie because he's endorsed Bernie. One of the things I want to ask him is about this. We have talked about it before, but how is the progress going? Are we getting any sort of commitment from the superdelegates or basically from Tom Perez and the DNC leadership? that if there's a plurality, they'll go with it. But that's the problem. That's the situation. That's how it would work. So, Carmen in Whitefish, Montana. Hey, Carmen, what's up? Really frustrated about this in- income equality. I watched Mayor Bloomberg bring in his, I don't know how many hundred million, but I understand he's in the tax bracket that one-tenth and one-percenters where he got $350 million this year for the $2 billion that he makes. I am sick of seeing people barely making the rent, don't have enough food. There's food banks around everywhere. There's homeless people standing right in front of me right now asking for money with signs out. This country is broke, and they're putting it all on the backs of people like you and I when there's people like Bloomberg all over the place, and they're holding on to everything and banking their money, not letting it get out there so we could all make it work out here in society. So if he's so damn altruistic... He should have stepped up and said, you know what, I got $350 million this year. Why don't I just make everybody a millionaire? There was a headline in the paper two days ago, I believe, that said that 2% of the U.S. defense budget could end hunger worldwide. 
I mean, you know, the, the, the absurd links that we go to to keep the rich rich and make them richer, mind-bogglingly richer, and Mike Bloomberg is a recipient of this, are just wrong. As Mike Bloomberg, and Carmen, thanks for the call, as Mike Bloomberg points out in his hundreds of millions of dollars of advertising, and let me be very clear, if Mike Bloomberg ends up being the choice of my party, I will campaign for him. Uh, as I've said, Bill the Cat's hairball is better than Donald Trump. Um, I will do everything I can. His defense has been, he sponsors, he's literally been one of the largest sponsors in the country of environmental movements and of anti-gun movements. What that buys him, how much goodwill that's going to buy him, I don't know. And he's now having to deal with being vetted for president. I mean, you know, he ran three elections for mayor of New York. And, but the real, you know, when they really start lifting the rug and looking for the dirt, that happens when you're running for president. And, and they're going to be going after him in a big way, I think. Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's up? I go for intellect. And the most intelligent person in this particular race that could get me to the polls would be Bernie Sanders. There is no ideology. Bernie Sanders. He's a very bright guy. I can tell you from personal experience. And he's the person he's always been. And that's the point. He hasn't shifted from this to that, from this to that. But what I really, the point I wanted to make is I am just really up to my, uh, whatever it is, anatomical part you want to think of that's high up with this talk about Bernie Sanders' age. Bernie Sanders is only six months or five months older than St. Valentine, Little Lord Fauntleroy. What's his name? Mike Bloomberg. He's only five months older than Mike Bloomberg. And then Joe Biden is only six months younger than Bernie Sanders. So it's all very specious, and it just really irks me because it gets away from the central arguments. And that's what we always do. The other point I want to make real quick, Tom, is this. I'm real concerned about Mike Bloomberg, particularly being black, because Michael Bloomberg has already done what people are accusing Trump of, and that's uh, overturning the law or, or becoming some type of dictator, uh, because Michael Bloomberg actually changed the law in New York because you can only run for, for mayor for two terms. He changed the law so that he could run right. for a third term. That's my yeah. point. Yeah, he funded a massive effort for that, and, and it worked. You know, advertising works in America. That's the thing, Kenyatta, that we have to deal with. Now that the Supreme Court in 76, 78, and then again, it's, you know, with Citizens United in 2010, doubled down on this. Now that the Supreme Court has said that whoever has the most money can own the politicians, and, and if, you've got, if you want to be a rich politician yourself, you can do that. We've got a problem. We've got a real problem. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey friends, wanted to give you the latest news about my good friend Bill Press. Bill no longer does his progressive morning show, but that doesn't mean he's gone away. No way. He's now out with a great new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. Check out The Bill Press Pod for Bill's interviews with some of the country's leading progressives like Maxine Waters, Mark Bocan, Jamie Raskin, all roasting Donald Trump. Plus his lively end of the week roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters commenting on the latest craziness from the White House Congress and the 2020 Democratic primary. For years, Bill Press has been one of the leading progressive voices in our country, so I'm so glad he's still out there on the left and stronger than ever. I encourage you to join me by subscribing to Bill's new podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the Bill Press pod, click on subscribe, and you're in for a true progressive experience on the Bill Press pod. Check out Bill's new podcast, The Bill Press Pod, dropped twice a week. (music) 
Jerry listening on KBCS in Auburn, Washington. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Your guest you had on, Tom Pauly, was right on. I graduated from a branch of the University of California about six months before Ronald Reagan became governor. All I can say is lucky me. Uh, the real reason I called is I'm assuming you will be seeing Pramila Jayapal. Ask her about the details of Monday night in Tacoma at Bernie's rally. First time I'd ever been to something like that, a political rally. Absolutely loved it. It was just out of sight. And I'm only about three years younger than Bernie. Are you familiar with a site called NewEconomicPerspectives.org? Yes, I am. Because they've got a great series over there by a guy named Mike Hexler. He's a Ph.D. psychologist, but he knows a lot about economics. It's the most poignant series about what politics are really like in this country I've ever read. Uh, I downloaded it and printed it. It's about 48 pages, but God, it, it was just so enlightening. A lot of things that you've talked about before, just amazing. Um, yeah, I'll have, I'll have to check it out. I, my recollection is that that site and NakedCapitalism.com are the two major sites for the the new monetary theory or whatever it's called, the, you know, the Stephanie yeah, Jones uh, stuff. Exactly. It's actually a website for the economic department for the University of Missouri at Kansas City. And there's strictly right, a hetero a econ group. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're strictly an e, you know, hetero econ group. And I get enlightened so much every time I go to that site. Thank you, Jerry. Christopher in Tacoma. Hey, Christopher, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. It's an honor to speak to you. I'm just reporting from the Tacoma Dome Bernie rally two nights ago. They reported that there were 17,026 people there, but anyone with Google can find out that they can fit 23,000 people there. And I was there. I recorded every single seat in there was full, and there were thousands and thousands of people standing in the middle. So... Wow. That number so had to probably have been 25,000. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think the reason why Bernie reported the wrong number was when you go in, they have you go onto a website and take the survey to count how many people. But the website mm -hmm. went down, and a lot of people just didn't do it because they wanted to get in. So if mm -hmm. you could get that to Bernie, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, I can't, but, uh, you know, you just got it to a whole bunch of people who are listening to the show, so that's that's a good start. I mean, I, what boggles my mind is, you know, Trump holds a rally and 1,500 people show up, and it's all over the news, right? Every network is talking about it. Um, the Tea Party holds a rally and 300 people show up, or some, some gun nuts hold a rally and, you know, 400 people, or I guess the last one was, was you know, a, a couple thousand people. And it's like major national news. Bernie has a rally with 20, 25,000 people in Seattle. He had 12,000 people in, in San Francisco. Um, I mean, he's, he is blowing these things out. And it's like there's a media blackout going on. It's just mind-boggling. Christopher, thank you for the call. And thanks for sharing the information with us. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Sarah in Fort Worth, Texas. What's on your mind, Sarah? I, I would actually like to argue. I don't think that Trump is trying to be a king or a dictator. I think he's trying to be an emperor, personally. Okay, but, what's um, the what's the distinction or the difference? Um, the emperor gets a lot more um, people praising him. Uh, he has, you know, he has the ability to uh, put more people to 
uh, under his thumb. Um, he controls mm-hmm. all the Senate if they disagree with him. I mean, all of it, you know, it's just, that's my opinion. But when he first got elected, I mean, I, I bawled, I cried. And uh, then I stopped and I got active and I'm still active. And now with all these pardonings, I'm crying again because no one is stopping him. And he's just bulldozing over everything. I've got uh, my oldest son just got married and, and you know, they're going to start having grandkids, which I welcome. But that scares me because of the direction of, our, of what's going on. And my other son, my youngest son, was, that's 28, he's working three jobs with only four hours in between where he has to start it up again. And if he loses one, you know, you talk about economics, they're, up, they're both on their own, but if, if they get one little blip, um, and we're already subsidizing them with money here and there as we can, but we're getting older. Um, I'm retired because I'm actually I'm disabled. I can't work. Um, so it's only my husband's uh, salary that's coming in. And um, it's we're not even talking a $400 I can't afford, but if something happens and both kids have to move back in, and this is our second marriage, and he's got three kids, and I mean, this is a disaster. Yeah, you're telling the American story right now, Sarah. This is, you know, when when you give the statistic that, you know, we've gone from roughly 60% of Americans being solidly in the middle class in 1980, and now after almost 40 years of Reaganomics, it's fewer than 50%. You know, it sounds like a statistic. Well, the statistic, that 10% of Americans, that 30, 40 million American people who have fallen out of the middle class, and into poverty. The millions of Americans who are now living homeless, who are living on the streets, and the millions more who are on the edge of it or who are couch surfing or living with friends, and and the the tens of millions, perhaps over 100 million Americans who are having to work multiple jobs or work longer hours just to stay afloat, just to keep their head above water. In particular, given you know our housing costs are going up in large part because of these low interest rates, it's causing you know a lot of speculation there, and our healthcare costs are just totally out of control because you've got health insurance companies like United Healthcare where they had two CEOs in a row take a billion dollars in income. I mean, it's like what? And you know all these millionaires and multimillionaires making multi-million dollar salaries every year, and and the average person is having to work two, three jobs, and 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 even that. Is, is not enough to move out of mom's basement. This is America on Reaganomics. And we've had two Democratic presidents who didn't challenge Reaganomics, who were saying basically, we can tweak this around the edges. You know, we can continue to have the health insurance companies rip us off. We'll just try to fill in the edges so that fewer people get ripped off. We'll continue to let the banksters rip us off, but we'll put into place a, a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that will, that will uh, take care of the worst of the offenses, which was a good step. And that, you know, that was Elizabeth Warren's project. But, you know, now Trump is, uh, you know, taking it apart. We need a complete repudiation of Reaganomics. We need to go back to Keynesian economics. And one of the cornerstones of, and thank you for the call, sir. I appreciate it. One of the cornerstones of Keynesian economics was that when the top tax rate goes above 50%, wealthy people begin to behave differently. Wealthy business owners keep their money in their business. 
Even small business owners will pay their employees better rather than take money out of the company. Now, I've told my own personal story about this back in the 70s. I had an herbal tea company in Michigan, and we had a couple of really, really good years. And I was making a lot of money, and my CPA said, you know, your tax, and the top tax rate at that point was 91%. I was pushing up against 50. And he said, you know, you're, you're paying so much in taxes, it's stupid. Why don't you put the money back into the businesses? We developed a whole new product line. And, and, and grew the company by three or four more employees because the taxes were so high. I mean, high taxes actually build economies. Look at all the other economies around the world. You've got very high taxes, and mostly on the rich, but even higher taxes on working people. In, in every developed country in the world, whether it's South Korea, whether it's Japan, whether it's Taiwan, whether it's any of the European countries, and what do you get for that? You get free college education, you get free health care, you get, a, you get a, a social safety net that you don't fall through, you get the ability to start businesses and not worry that, that if your business doesn't work out, you're going to end up bankrupt. You, you, uh, are, you know, because of a health bill, you don't have, in America last year, 560,000 people declared bankruptcy because they, got a, because they got hit by a health care bill. We now have this new thing called surprise billing, which is where you go to the hospital and, you know, you're, you're, uh, if you have Medicare Advantage, you know, privatized Medicare, or if you have private health insurance, you have to go in network, right? So you, so you say, okay, well, I'll go to the hospital. It's 30 miles down the road instead um, because they're in my network. And then, you know, you're put under and you're rolled into the surgery room and the surgeon is working on you didn't bother to tell you that he's not in the network. And so you get home and you got a $20,000 bill for the surgeon. And there's no way to, to just, you know, dump that on Medicare or anything like that. It's like, you know, or your insurance company. And then pretty soon you got bill collectors chasing you. I mean, they, you know, one of the fastest growing industries in the United States right now is bill collectors coming after people who have student debt, coming after people who have consumer debt. It's just, it's just insane. Paul in Lucerne, California. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I'd like to talk about messaging. I keep on hearing about Democrats talk about want to redistribute wealth with the tax code. No, it's not redistributing wealth. It's redirecting wealth. And how you do that is you raise the top tax, top tax marginal rate to 50%. That way, you or force above. companies to... Yeah, you force, I prefer 70, you prefer, you force companies to put money back into the corporations and pay their employees better. Because if they pay themselves any more than $3 million a year, we're going to take 50 to 70% of it. And that's why the 70s are so awesome in the 50s and 60s, because we had a really high top tax marginal rate and enforced employees to redirect their wealth back into their companies and back to their employees. That's what the word we need to use, not redistribute. Americans don't go for that. If, if you got something, you got it. Americans don't want to take something from somebody and give it back to us. They don't want mm -hmm. that. But they would go for redirecting wealth with the tax code. They'd go for that. They'd buy that. They'd jump on that bandwagon and say, yeah, let's do that. It sounds yeah. better. I, you know, I get your argument, Paul. It's everything. It's, it, I think it's a little late right now in the game for us to try to be redefining terms. The Republicans and the corporate Democrats have been using that word redistribution of income, redistribution of wealth, literally since the 1930s. So much like the word socialism, I, I think rather than trying to come up with another word that we can start, you know, flogging, if I just try to do it on this show, you know, that uh, Talkers Magazine says we have 7 million listeners. I mean, that's throughout the course of a week. That's just a drop in the bucket. I'm not able to change the ship of state, as it were, you know, nationwide and how oh, we yes, use language. Are. I, <laughs> I think more important would be for us to embrace 
redistribution of wealth and turn it from a bad word into a good word. I mean, if you look at, you know, socialism 10 years ago, across all age groups polled as a negative word. Today, people under 25, you know, more than half of them will tell you that socialism is a preferable system to capitalism. So the word has been reclaimed, and I, I think that we can re reclaim redistribution of wealth. I understand your idea. I like your idea. I'll use redirecting from time to time as well. And your point about the top tax rate is huge because people just don't even know, I think. And I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party don't know that the top tax rate was 91% right up until the late 60s when LBJ dropped it down to 74%. And it was 74% from the late 60s right up until, uh, I think it was 1983 well, was, Reagan. When, was when Reagan finally dropped it down to 25%. That was the end Reagan of Keynesian economics. The raised the win win election. Yeah, there you go. And, uh, and that's what happened. Paul, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Lewis in Belfast, Maine. Hey, Lewis, what's on your mind today? I'm deeply concerned about something that occurred to me last week when I was listening to your program. And, uh, you know, realizing that the Trump administration always seems to be several steps ahead of us. And my concern is that there's a possibility that they will take this prison system that they have developed for the refugees and be with the Patriot Act, they can pick us up off the street because they've already got a system in place and a place places for us to go. So I, yeah, I'm you'll recall, concerned. Lewis, that, that that same concern was being expressed by Republicans when they thought Obama was going to put us in essentially right. re-education camps. You know, I can't totally reassure you, but I'm not all that worried. So in our latest video for supporters of our program over at TomHartman.com, uh, you'll find a riff about a fellow named Errol Graham. He's a 57-year-old African-English individual who, who starved to death recently in the United Kingdom. The neoliberal Thatcher policies are apparently echoing through the British system now in a rather substantial way, the same way that Reaganomics is echoing through the American system. And we've got tens of thousands of Americans who die every year because they lack health care or, or they can't afford copays and things. And, uh, and we have literally millions of children in America who are malnourished or even go to bed hungry every night. It's pretty breathtaking stuff. And I think you'll, you'll find the rant uh, particularly interesting or useful and hope you can share it with your friends uh, when you pick it up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Thanks again for supporting our program. Tom Hartman here with you. You know, the movie Parasite is actually about income inequality or wealth inequality, rather, in South Korea. And it's a, a movie with subtitles, and we'll get to that part in just a moment. A great piece in the Washington Post by Christopher Ingraham. He says, it's a story of a society where the working class has no hope of attaining a better life and instead squabble among themselves for the literal scraps of prosperity cast off by the wealthy as the wealthy moves serenely through their charmed lives. That's the plot device, essentially, of this movie Parasite. He notes, in South Korea, the top 1% of South Koreans own a quarter, 25% of the nation's wealth, while the bottom half of the population owns just 2% of the nation's wealth. And that sounds pretty bad, right? In other words, if South Korea were only 100 people and its wealth was a pie with 100 slices, 
The richest person would get 25 slices of that pie all to himself, while the poorest 50 people would have to split two slices of pie among them. But in the United States, now back in the 1980s, our inequality was roughly like that. The bottom 50% had about 3% of the nation's wealth. So it would have been, you know, the top 1% owns a quarter of the wealth and the bottom 50% owns, has three slices of pie. But today, 40 years after Reaganomics, after 40 years of Reaganomics, the richest American gets a whopping, now keep in mind, in, in Korea, the richest Korean of the 100 people, the richest would get 25 slices of pie. In the United States, the richest American, the single richest American, would, would get a whopping 39 slices of pie, while the bottom 50 people would get nothing in the United States. In fact, they would owe pie to the richest person, to the richest 1%, that top 1%. And this is where we are at now. The top 1% of South Koreans earns about 12% of national income, while in the United States, the top 1% earns 20%, one-fifth of all our income. And the bottom 50% of Americans literally have none of our nation's wealth. In fact, they have a negative net worth. They're in debt. In the Washington Post, as recently as the late 1980s, the bottom half of Americans could claim several percent of the country's wealth as their own. So Trump comes out one of his rallies the other day and just goes off on it. He's, he's talking about this movie. And again, the movie has subtitles, right? It's in Korean. And he says, uh, what the hell was that all about? We've got enough problems with South Korea and trade. On top of all that, they give him the best movie of the year, you know, attacking the Academy Awards. Neon, one of the people I believe in the movie, I'm not sure the whole story here, but Neon tweeted that little clip of Trump saying that and, and said, you know, it's understandable that he would be critical. He can't read. <laughs> it's a subtitled movie, right? Get it? Okay. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Picture your face in the mirror. Do you see all those wrinkles around your eyes? How about crow's feet or large under-eye bags? Now, imagine that they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw the results for myself. You'll be delighted too. You'll look just like you, only 10 years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. You will be too. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code VOICES for 50% off a full-size bottle of Plexiderm plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code VOICES. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code VOICES at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com, code VOICES.